You're listening to the podcast of the musictherapyresearchblog.com. Blythe and I were pleased to be joined by Dr. Felicity Baker from the University of Melbourne uh, in Australia, who uh, teaches music therapy down there and is a prominent researcher as, uh, and also as part of our Journal of Music Therapy um, editorial board series. And um, Dr. Baker happens to be the associate editor of JMT at this point in time. So um, we were very pleased to have her on to talk a lot about her personal research, but also a little bit about the role that she plays as associate editor. She is a former Australia Research Council Future Fellow from 2011 to 2015 in the area of music therapy and working on a study that aims to build a therapeutic model of songwriting across the lifespan. We also talk a little bit about that, um, the, the outgrowth of that uh, inquiry, and there's a link on the bottom of the blog post um, uh, to the paper that she wrote with uh, Dr. Raymond McDonald and Dr. Michael Silverman. And uh, she's also the founding director of the International Research Network of Therapeutic Songwriting, which has 32 members from 12 countries. And as I mentioned, she's a professor of music therapy at University of Melbourne in Australia. Her clinical and research expertise are predominantly in neurorehabilitation with a special interest in communication rehabilitation and facilitating emotional adjustment to a changed identity via various music therapy methods. She is national president of the Australian Music Therapy Association, the national peak body for the discipline, and former editor of the Australian Journal of Music Therapy. She holds editorial board membership on the Journal of Music Therapy here in the States and the Nordic Journal of Music Therapy and has taught on international music therapy programs in Taiwan, USA, Germany, Denmark, Norway, and the United Kingdom. Felicity was awarded a University of Queensland Foundation Excellent in Research Award in 2008, an Australian Learning and Teaching Council Citation Award in 2009, and an ADC Australian Leadership Award in 2011. Uh, Dr. Baker has published widely with over 70 publications and is best known for authored and edited texts, including Music Therapy in Neurorehabilitation, a Clinician's Manual, Songwriting Methods, Techniques, and Clinical Applications for Music Therapy Clinicians, Educators, and Students, and Voice work in music therapy research and practice and we are very pleased to bring you this podcast with dr felicity baker from the university of melbourne Thank you very much for joining us for this Music Therapy Research Podcast. And Felicity, would you talk a little bit to start us about your pathway to becoming interested in music therapy research? Yes, thanks, Andrew. Yeah, I think my my um, my interest was really sparked by my clinical experience working with, with adults with acquired brain injury. And it was back in the sort of uh, mid to late 1990s. Uh, and I was working with people with post-traumatic amnesia and... Um, the the hospital that I was working at was very anti-music uh, therapy with this particular phase of recovery and uh, was saying that it would overstimulate them and I begged to differ. So I embarked on a, on a project then and um, with, you know, quite dramatic results, which actually led to change in their policy for practice. And from then onwards, I, uh, I really just like the idea of continuing to contribute to, to knowledge um, in our field. That's really uh, interesting that you see that impact of research on practice and on policy. That's excellent. Can you tell mm. us a little bit more about um, the research in your current position and some of the challenges to starting up a line of research? 
Okay, so I think one of the main challenges um, with research is around money. Uh, in order to get to get a really good uh, research agenda, you need to have a lot of money to support that. Otherwise, you tend to just uh, focus on small-scale projects and, uh, you know, it, ha- it does take time to build the track record that you need in order to kind of secure that, that money. But I found now that I'm at that point where um, I have that track record and so now I can build build that. And so having, you know, postdocs on, on research projects really, really helps with that. Uh, I think um, uh, working in in more applied contexts, it's also uh, difficult to um, recruit and to get support from um, staff within the the places that you are actually trying to recruit from to get support because it's not really high on their priority list. I'm I'm also wondering because uh, because we're talking about um, uh, you know current research interests and that sort of thing. How do you, how do you describe the research and the whether it's populations and you mentioned theoretical research and that. Uh, how do you describe the the specifics of your current research interests? What are you most interested in right now? Well, I'm, I'm really interested from a theoretical perspective on uh, mechanisms of change, so not just looking at what the outcomes of our, res- our research is and our practice as clinicians, but what is it that underpins those. So I'm particularly interested in looking at um, a combination of how uh, the concept of flow impacts um, our outcomes and also um, the extent of meaningfulness. And if I talk about that within the context of my own research in songwriting, I'm trying to establish whether um, the strength of the meaningfulness of someone's songwriting experience impacts the extent to which uh, their um, therapeutic outcomes um, are realised. So is, is someone who experiences the songwriting process as more meaningful than someone else? Does that is that reflected in a greater change in their well-being than the person where it's not so meaningful? And just to, so to, and just to interrupt a second, is that uh, would you say that's the thrust of the paper that you just uh, put out with uh, Dr. Michael Silverman and I think it's Dr. Raymond McDonald? Is that is that about right? That that's correct. And okay. and the and should I continue with that? Yes, please. Sorry, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I, I I'll uh, I'll see if I can put a link to that abstract uh, on the blog post too. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so so that particular article that just came out in um, in the Journal of Music Therapy. So. What the impetus for that was, uh, based on my research with with Professor Ray McDonald from Edinburgh, we tried to to um, create um, a measure that would be able to capture the extent of of this meaningfulness of the process, so that then when we engage in actual outcome based research, we've got a tool that can help us to um, to see whether these mechanisms of change are. Um, are active, so that that was the point of that was to first of all get a get a tool and to validate it, and now we can go and use it in our in our um, re- our future research. When you're looking at the scope of research out there, how do you look at music therapy research as it compares to research in other fields such as medical field? Uh, well, not good actually, <laughs> um, I, but I think that that's really a, just a product of. Um, how how much time and money we've got to research. We're very lucky in Australia. We have a system where um, it's it's just expected that um, 40% of your time or more, if you can get money, is 
should be devoted to research. And I know that um, certainly from my experience of interacting with many of you in the States that there's only very few of you who um, are privileged with that kind of academic position. In fact, I know you talk about educators and researchers where we just talk about academics and it's expected that we have a balance across those. Uh, so I think um, in order to kind of build um, or scale up your research to that sort of that sort of capacity, um, you need to have time and, and resources. So we can't really compete with the you know the medical field until we have time and resources to do that. I think one of the the ways to uh, to get around that is to really work together with big teams of researchers. Uh, either teams of music therapy researchers, such as kind of multi-site studies, or to work with a team of interdisciplinary researchers. And that's sort of the approach that I've been taking in more recent years. So I'm wondering if you'd tell us a little bit about publications that uh, you would like to highlight or discuss uh, in terms of anything from from your first couple manuscripts, your first couple research processes, uh, all the way up to this this. Uh, uh, new evaluation of you know flow and composition and what's in there that that uh, you think were, were interesting projects for you to work on from a research perspective there are multiple where would i start uh, <laughs> that's perhaps, a good answer that's great that's a lot of research productivity <laughs> uh well and that's just because i'm so passionate about it i um, right. you know i get a, i kind of get a little bit addicted to it I, I get into a state of flow when i'm involved in research oh, um good. i think um uh, probably really the studies that I've just completed as part of my um, Australia Research Funded Future Fellowship. So I was fortunate enough to secure um, a large fellowship that brought me out of my, my usual job for four years. And um, as part of that, one of the studies, I did a series of studies, including the ones that I mentioned before with uh, Professor Raymond McDonald, um, but one of the studies involved interviewing 45 um, experienced clinicians and researchers from around the world, including several from the States, and I used these interviews to build um, knowledge around um, different orientations and the way they impact on the songwriting process. So, for example, I looked at um, how does, for example, cognitive behavioural therapy um, how does that orientation influence a songwriting process compared to, say, community music therapy? And that's been particularly interesting for me because I'm very, I'm very keen for music therapy researchers when they report on their use of, for example, songwriting to be quite specific about what type of songwriting. I mean, songwriting is many things. And when you just see in the method section, Oh, I used songwriting as the intervention. Well, what does that mean? I mean, that can mean a million and one things. And so I really wanted to, to drill down to uh, connecting orientation with um, the way it's practised. Just looking at all the different research studies you've had, you've done a lot of different research in several different areas with a lot of different teams of researchers. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what it's like being on a research team. What is that experience for individuals who may have not done that before? Okay, well, I can take two perspectives from that. I can talk about it from leading a team, but I could also uh, talk about it from being a participator where somebody else leads the team. Uh, and I I, uh, I think um, in some ways I, I prefer to be someone who leads the team because uh, you can, I guess, steer the research in a direction where you're most passionate. 
but I, uh, for example, at the moment, I'm working on a grant application um, that involves um, uh, a music psychologist and, um, and believe it or not, a dramaturge. Uh, who, for those of you who don't know what that is, is someone who writes theatre scripts and also a researcher from the Monash Accident Research Centre. And um, we're, we're creating this idea about how we can um, use uh, music-based theatre performances to impact people's um, knowledge and attitudes towards road safety. Uh, we're going to be targeting learner drivers in this particular project. And I, I, I get really fascinated by the, the types of uh, knowledge that um, these team members contribute. And they really opened me up to thinking about uh, music therapy quite differently. Um, whereas when I take the, the role of um, a participant in, in somebody else's research, uh, sorry, a, a researcher on somebody else's team, um, that that has kind of a different field as well because you are, I guess, shaped a little bit about what their passion is and you're brought in for your particular expertise. But I also still grow from that process of, of learning about how they do research and um, I think I've become a better researcher as a result of that, limiting myself to just um, doing research with music therapy with other music therapy researchers, I think is a lim- would be a limitation for me. Right, the interprofessional aspect, you know, bringing in bringing in all the other points of view. I think that's I think that's a uh, an interesting way of talking about it. Not not just from a research perspective, but it's what we do clinically too. Mostly working with you know other professionals as well. Um, you have a lot of you're spinning a lot of plates here in terms of research. How do you manage to uh, do you have a do you have a process where you manage all the different research projects you're going on? What stages they're in? Uh, when you get a research idea, does it go in the does it go in the little uh, little journal that's you know uh, by a nightstand or something? How do you actually you know from start to finish keep track of all the different research projects that you want to undertake? Um, I, well, I I see myself as having a research agenda, so I have an idea about where I want to be and where I, where I want my research to go, and so then I start to think about. Ways to get there, and because I like the idea of res- of my research to be um, to have broad applicability, I I tend to think about well, what are all the arms associated with getting to this kind of endpoint, and I I plan them out that way. And I I don't I don't as I said before I don't run all of them. Other people run it for me. Some of them, um, for example, I have an Australia Research Council grant at the moment. Um, which also my colleague Jeanette Tamplin, who you may be aware of, is on as well. And we have a postdoc who pretty much runs it for us now. So we have um, we have the um, we wrote the grant and designed the project, and she now runs with it. And every uh, every Friday afternoon, she sends us an update about what's happened during the week and with questions and things like that. So I don't have to keep it all in my head all the time, fortunately. So it's not just a series of whiteboards with color-coded markers <laughs> flying around your office or anything like that. Is that what you're saying? I wish I was that organized. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I have little scrap pieces of paper. I use my iPad a lot. With, with, with I have like a little notes page, right? If something comes up, I go, oh, I must write that down because I'll forget it. Yeah. <laughs> As 
the uh, associate editor with the Journal of Music Therapy and also on different editorial boards, you've read a lot of research. Can you give our listeners some advice on manuscript preparation? It might seem rather obvious, but read the guidelines (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) because you'd be amazed how many come through that that just don't comply um, with guidelines. Um, uh, I would say also read the mission statement of the journal, like pitch pitch your article uh, that um, meets their mission. And I think, you know, sometimes you have to be strategic about that. I don't always write an article uh, that um, is specifically about music therapy. I will shape it in a way that will meet their their criteria and I sometimes call it a music intervention rather than a music therapy intervention because some some journals don't even like the idea of therapy. Um, it's a bit of a taboo word for them. Um, well, I'm also wondering in the associate editor role, would you take would you take us uh, inside uh, sort of the process? You know, we had we had Sherry on the the editor of Journal of Music Therapy, and then there's all of us, uh, you know, as reviewers that are part of the editorial board. But what is the what's the role of the associate editor in the in the process for the Journal of Music Therapy? What is your sort of job description, if you would? Okay, uh, that's easier answer. <laughs> um, well, what typically happens is the the editor will assign me a manuscript to work with. And so what I would do is I would read the uh, the article and um, get a sense of who do I think might be appropriate to review that. And then I will select reviewers in the first instance to invite to, to, um, to look at those articles and provide a report. And then the, the trickiest part of the whole process is to take those those reports from the different reviewers and pull out the most salient points um, to feed back to the to the authors, and that can be kind of tricky because sometimes you get reviewers who'll have quite um, opposing uh, views on something, um, and sometimes you get a you get a reviewer who's extremely supportive and one who's very negative about a, a paper. So it's about taking those pieces of feedback and synthesizing them in, them in a way um, that will. The, the, their reports will make sense to, to the authors. Uh, so that's the main process. I have to say that it is quite difficult to find reviewers who are suitable for the papers and who are um, genuinely blind to who the authors are. Um, that is becoming increasingly difficult as our field gets more and more specialised. I mean, now anyone who's who um, I think many people will be a paper that I've written and probably will not be blind to it because um, my research has become so uh, so focused that it, um, people will just guess that it's <laughs> that it's me. Right. Um, and and I and as a an associate editor, I've experienced that many times where reviewers will have come to me and they I know this paper has been written by this person, and uh, so it makes it makes my life difficult as an associate editor. But, um, but also it forces me to kind of look outside the people I know really well and do a bit of searching about who else might be suitable to to review this this article. Um, so okay. the so you're you know where the paper came from, and then you're looking for uh, you know the correct people, the best people to review the paper, and so you're sort of like this uh, one of your one of your main roles is as a liaison between those uh, between those two parties. Would you say that's correct? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, the, the challenge is also not just about find the, finding the correct reviewer, but also sometimes the authors will, will make specific requests to not have someone in particular review their paper. And when there are already very few suitable reviewers for that specific topic, that presents a new challenge again. It's like, well, this would have been my first person to go to and they're saying they don't want that person to be reviewing their paper. Another question for new researchers out there, just any general advice you have for someone who is maybe a clinician and wants to get into research or someone who's just starting to do research in music therapy? Yes, I've got some advice to, uh, to do what I didn't do. <laughs> um, I, I would say the best advice I could give is to link yourself up with someone already experienced and have them mentor you because uh, you do learn a lot from um observing a more experienced researcher, whether that's a researcher from our own discipline or from a, a related health discipline, that would be my first uh, piece of advice, link up with someone. So our last question for you today is about your perception of what is needed for the future of music therapy research. In terms of the, I think, I think what I was mentioning at the very beginning about this idea of, of mechanisms of change, or some people would call it mechanisms of action, I think it's really important that we um, we build research with, that has large capacity, so with large uh, numbers of participants where the medical field will really take it seriously, but also uh, to, to ensure that we're really utilising uh, music therapy interventions that are uh, what we would call best practice. Uh, we would... We really do need to understand also what underpins that, what are these mechanisms, because if we better understand those, then we're better able to tailor our intervention to meet those mechanisms and um, and hopefully have uh, better therapeutic outcomes. So I think that's where I, that's where I think we should really go. I'm also, as I mentioned before too, I'm also very keen on us being better at uh, comparing uh, different orientations, so using um, music therapy methods, look through different lenses and compare those kind of outcomes. So if I think about um, uh, what I mentioned about my songwriting research, so how does songwriting um, that is practised through a cognitive behavioural therapy, what, what are the outcomes associated with that compared to another type of um, songwriting practice like community music therapy um, and, you know, if you're using the same population, what are the differences in the types of outcomes um, that, that those particular songwriting approaches uh, lead to? I, I'm filled with uh, ideas just listening to you uh, to give those, uh, give those suggestions out there. Thanks very much for, for those thoughts. And uh, for your time today for the podcast, too, I really appreciated uh, being able to talk with you uh, much more about music therapy research. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Music for this podcast is called It's Gone by Oscar Key Sung from the album Live on New Weird Australia. You're listening to the podcast associated with the Music Therapy Research Blog, found at musictherapyresearchblog.com. 
Your hosts are Dr. Blythe Lagasse and Dr. Andrew Knight, music therapy faculty members at Colorado State University. If you enjoyed the podcast, please let us know by heading to iTunes and submitting a review and a rating. It only takes a minute and helps our visibility on the iTunes page tremendously. Thanks in advance.